Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking and this week we are going to be thinking and chatting with the incredible Helen from the even more incredible vet-led team. Um, we talked to her about her really inspiring career as a registered veterinary nurse but also how her interest in human factors and non-technical skills have actually gone on to really shape her career. We discussed the importance of addressing incivility in clinical practice and actually the massive impact that these behaviours have, not only on us and how that makes us feel, but also those around us and, and even more importantly, uh, the patients that we are treating. I want to say a massive thank you to VetLed for their support of this podcast, but also just for being amazing. And, and we've enjoyed working with them on, on so many different projects. They really are a joy, uh, a joy to work with. In our clinical segment this week, we're going to finish up our discussion about feline pancreatitis, focusing on some of the treatment options for this tricky condition. Well, listen, Helen, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, we're excited to chat to you for lots of different reasons. We have already had um, some conversations with your colleagues um, from VetLed. And what's been nice is, so, so far we've had someone who likes to, what did he say, roll backwards, go backwards, something to do with rowing and being a pilot. And then we had um, a, a vet um, who actually, um, Kat and I had crossed paths at the PDSA in Edinburgh, who knew. Um, so we've we've had a non-vet, a vet, and now most importantly, um, we're representing vet nurses. Um, and that was obviously such an important part of uh, our profession. So I don't know if you are okay just to start by um, telling us a little bit about you and your veterinary background. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be very happy to. And thank you so much for inviting me to do this podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, so I started vet nursing straight out of A-levels, out of school. It was something that I wanted to do since I was I don't know, about 14 or something. I started with a love of horses and um, then um, discovered a friend who was a vet nurse um, who worked in local general practice and kind of tagged along to work with her and then got a Saturday job, an evening job. As much as I could be there, I was there and progressed on to doing my um, nurse training one day a week in a local general practice. And I think I just found it so interesting. Everything, I wanted to know more about everything. So I um, wanted to do the surgical diploma. So I started working at the Animal Health Trust to get a really broad range of experience. Um, and then I worked at another um, uh, referral centre, got my surgical diploma. I um, went on to do um, the critical care, um, that's now um, uh, emergency critical care um, certificate, and still was absolutely hungry for, for, more, for more knowledge, really. Um, and I'm a surgical veterinary nurse, really. That's what makes me tick. I'm one of those weirdos who you'll find in, in surgery uh, loving it. Um, and I became really interested in patient safety and clinical human factors and how our brains work and how that affects performance and how that ultimately affects patient safety. So I then embarked on a master's um, back at the Animal Health Trust um, alongside my clinical work to, to try and put those two together. It's something that we haven't really explored too deeply or we're beginning to explore um, in veterinary practice. So it was important to me to, to keep looking at, at how we could um, gain more knowledge, learn from aviation and healthcare and um, sort of improve. I absolutely have loved my career over the 20 plus years I've done it. I've um, always enjoyed clinical work. But um, when the animal health trust shut, obviously, I was left with a bit of a tricky um, decision to make. And I always believe things happen for a reason um, because um, VetLed contacted me at around that time. We started to talk about me working with VetLed and using what I learned in the master's. So that's where I am now. Um, I am senior trainer and content development lead for VetLed and absolutely love putting into practice um, everything that I've learned, adding it to my practical experience so that we can make it really easy to implement in practice. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, so interesting and, and, and obviously um, your career has taken, um, you know, talking about that importance of kind of your interest in the clinical stuff, but then your interest in these very many non-clinical sort of factors that are so important. But I don't know where... Uh, the, 
I, I understand people sort of sitting down one day and saying, yeah, well, I'm going to do a surgical diploma or I'm going to do an anesthesia certificate or I'm going to, you know, that all, that gaining more clinical knowledge is, is almost an obvious sort of path for vets and nurses, I think. That's a very obvious thing for us to try and do. What, what I mean, were you just like in the shower one day and just thought, actually, I'm going to do, you know, where does that kind of, where does the real inspiration for that sort of thing come from to do something from an, in that non-clinical space? Well, <laughs> it's an interesting. I wasn't in the shower. Um, when, I worked, <laughs> when I worked at the Animal Health Trust, um, I worked with a fantastic, the, the theatre manager there, James Gasson, absolutely amazing, um, just a, a transformational leader, very charismatic, just amazing in, in what he did. And James and I used to ponder these greater questions whilst he was having a fag and I was drinking coffee. And, and anybody who knows James and I <laughs> knows that both of those things used to happen quite frequently. I used to drink a lot of coffee and, and James used to smoke a lot of cigarettes. So we used to <laughs> ponder the finer things of life um, at this time. And, and James was also very interested in this area and still is. And we started chatting about frustrations of why um, people got frustrated and why people perhaps didn't behave in the right way in theatre and what led to that and the sort of psychological background of understanding people's technical abilities to lead and to communicate and how we could teach nurses to be better at anticipating what's requested of them, what's required to kind of almost slightly mitigate the possibility of a lack of communication or a misunderstanding within the theatre. And I sort of just became really interested in actually the endpoints of failures in um, communication and all of the non-technical skills and wanted to really find out some more about that. And what I discovered really quickly was that actually we hadn't explored that within veterinary healthcare. We hadn't looked at it yet. Um, all of the information we had was really quite disjointed. Um, and so I started looking at how I could learn more about reading papers from um, human healthcare and from aviation and then came across the masters. And uh, again, probably over another cup of coffee and uh, James having a fag, we talked about the fact that actually this would be my next step. This is what I would love to do and to explore this space within veterinary healthcare. So being obviously, I don't want you to like divulge, you know, but are we talking about kind of some of this inspiration then being surgeons throwing things in theatre or because if I'm being honest like I don't want to be like disparaging towards surgeons but the minute you said that I thought oh god I, you know I've heard stories of some really bad behavior you know in theatre you know not just in theatre but are, are we talking and, and again you don't have to go into too much detail but are you talking about potentially um that sort I mean that's quite extreme but that sort of behavior that is obviously unacceptable in our in any profession really oh gosh it's a tricky question um but yes I, I think is the answer I think one of my roles was to mentor um nurses coming into the theatre and to help them settle and to learn the skills that they needed to be really successful and what I quickly realized was most of the people I was mentoring needed little guidance on actually the clinical aspects of it yes okay there maybe needed to be guided on how we did things, what different instruments were called. But what was really the most challenging part was how I could teach things like situational awareness. How can I, because the, um, the surgeons would always favor somebody who knew what they were thinking before they were thinking it, somebody who could predict what the next instrument would be because they could work more smoothly and it was less stressful. But of course, that comes with experience and time and understanding of how that particular person works. And my job was to try and teach somebody how to gain those skills sort of a little, little bit quicker, as it were. And some of the kickback and fallout from that was that occasionally people got frustrated and I don't think I ever witnessed anything being thrown um <laughs> but there was you know it could be tough it could be yes. you know if it was a stressful situation and you had a, somebody who was learning in the room and they didn't didn't pick up on the clues and the subtleties and couldn't communicate it's very easy to turn to jelly I've been in that situation myself where I've just turned to jelly in the face of someone a little bit intimidating um and everything just goes out the window. Playing devil, devil's advocate, I suppose, I would say to you, I don't know, so you're you're clearly seeing that there's a space there for, um, you know, improving people's sort of situational awareness. I totally get that. And, and sort of helping them work in the most effective way that they possibly can. But 
is I don't know is that that's obviously not the whole answer because equally regardless of situational awareness and working as as effectively as you can my my sort of my point or my my response would be well do we not need to change the bad behavior of the person that's getting a bit arsey you know I don't and and that might be an understatement I mean I know that let's not let's not beat around the bush we know that people and this is not just surgeons but we know that that people can behave very badly in in practice settings under stressful situations so should we not should we not be saying to them hold on a second (laughs) you can't really talk to me like that you know this is what we've been doing a lot of work on at VetLed recently. We've been talking about incivility um, and the importance of civility and practice and what we can do in sort of real time to adjust these, these things. And it starts with each and every one of us, really, because I think, you know, with the best will in the world, we all have bad days. We all have days when we're not our best selves and we get stressed or overwhelmed or overloaded, which is really, really common at the moment, let's face it, with the, um, the pandemic and with um, staff shortages through Brexit and all of the rest of it. But we, we know that this is kind of exacerbated and we need to put real steps in place to help reduce that. So that's what we've been working on alongside um you know, gathering information about non-technical skills. And that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment is, is we've run some, um, we ran a survey with Aberdeen um, University to look into the co-worker um, rudeness that occurs and give us an idea of where we can go, what's, what's happening right now and what can we do to stop that happening? So on one side, we've done lots of research. On one side, we've done lots of listening to civility saves lives and to talk to Chris Turner very, very frequently and in depth about what we do in our space to really make sure that this problem is reduced um, to as, as minimal as possible because um, we know that it's frequently misunderstanding people do um, misunderstand each other. That's that's a fact of life, whether it's differences in language or culture, or we're just too quick with what we're speaking. We just, you know, we, we don't use the correct words. Sometimes our body language can say something different to the words we're using, and then that gives us away and we miscommunicate and have misunderstandings. But kind of by understanding all these things and working out what we can do, yes, we can we can begin to address those behaviors and figure out what's stressing people out and put steps in place to really support people so that acts of incivility don't happen. Um, and hopefully we can address that, that kind of area that we do hear of frequently um, in surgery. Not just surgery, remember, other, <laughs> let's not try, tar- <laughs> these poor surgeons getting tarnished with this brush. But I think um, I've seen it in medicine too. <laughs> so yes. I don't <laughs> I've seen it in medicine. I've seen it in all disciplines. My goodness me! So for sure. So then, there is this. Um, you know, we 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 understand this phrase: civility saves lives. And I'm interested in that because I think that I understand. I think the benefit of being civil to some other to other human beings. But I think it, it feels like civility saves lives is a really bold statement when you're talking about saving anything's life through civility. That sounds like, wow, God, that's like a big thing. So is that is that too bold a statement or do you think that's true? No, absolutely. It's, sadly, it's absolutely true. So what we know, the facts of incivility, um, which was a, a piece of work done by Parson Pearson across a great um, vast range of industries, um, is that there's a lot of, of data out there to support this. So we know that when people are incivil to us, we have our bandwidth squeezed. The, the amount of actual thinking, problem-solving, sharing we can do is greatly reduced. And in fact, the, the data suggests that's by 61%. So our bandwidth and our cognitive ability reduces by 61% when somebody's rude to us because we're trying to make sense of it. We're trying to figure out why this person's been rude to us, what we've done to deserve it, what we could do to mitigate it, what we can do to put it right, where we go from here. And that kind of takes over our ability for logical thinking. So what we know then is that when our brain is working in that respect, it's not taking on other information. It's not looking after our patients. And they went on to research that, in fact, 25% of people who are recipients of rudeness then go on to take it out on their patients. 
And there's been lots and lots of research within healthcare that suggests um, the same, that we know that 75% of doctors who were interviewed um, found that they knew that bad behaviours that had been witnessed within their team then led to medical error. And they then went on to say that 25% of all the doctors and nurses that were interviewed said that these behaviours, they were sure these behaviours had contributed to the deaths of their own patients. So we're actually, the, the findings and the research behind it is incredibly robust. We know that by squeezing our bandwidth, by squeezing our cognitive ability, we actually don't focus on what we need to focus on and that re- re- that really affects our patients and their safety. Right. So, okay, so that's a mic drop moment for me because my interpretation, I, I should have clearly done my research. My interpretation of civility saves lives was that civility saves the lives of the people that you're being incivil to. Is that right? Incivil? Is that the word? Yeah. So actually, that's crazy. So what you're saying is the incivility was actually squeezing the professional and actually then having a negative impact on their patients yes wow right yeah i mean i'm sure that we know that incivility from our, our our research we know that incivility causes increased incidence of burnout we know that it's linked to job intention turnover and we know it's linked to job satisfaction so we also know it's having a massive effect on our well-being so it may in some cases save the lives of the person that's directly affected however when we talk about civility saving lives we're talking about the lives of our patients wow gosh right that's so i've yeah that's really interesting i mean that's that's amazing amazing so i know you're doing a lot you've done you know this recent survey that you've spoken about i don't want you to give us like any um spoilers i mean please feel free to share your data as a as a as a a, like exclusive if you like like um let's think of it like adele releasing 10 seconds of her latest single you know sort of similar level of (laughs) exclusive no i'm joking so um what so what do we know on the veterinary side then so obviously this is this is a lot of that human data you spoke about what do we know from a veterinary perspective so the good news is that um we are gathering more momentum with this we're gathering more pace and there's more and more information coming out and the BVA have done some fantastic stuff with their workplace um, information and um, vetsurgeon.org.uk and vetnurse.co.uk also did some some great researchers on a survey in 2017 so the facts that we know before our survey results are released are that we know that out of veterinary professionals, roughly 73%, so almost three quarters of staff had been belittled in front of other staff. We know that 65% had been criticised minutely. We know that 54% of practice managers have been shouted at or screamed at. And we know that 48%, almost half of nurses, have at one point or another felt deliberately excluded or ignored. It's very uncomfortable, isn't it, to listen to that? Yeah, it is. But do you know what, Scott, can I make you a little bit more uncomfortable? Oh, don't. Um, All right. (laughs) When I talk about this 48% of nurses, it really reminds me of the Elaine Bromley story. And I don't know whether you've heard that story. I'll I'll tell you about it for the listeners. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, So Elaine Bromley was a lady who was admitted Um, to hospital for routine sinus operation absolutely routine Um, I've had sinus surgery myself it's a day surgery you go in it's quite quick and and then you leave the same day so Elaine was admitted she was prepared for theatre she was induced and um, they tried to place an endotracheal tube and her airway closed and they couldn't do it. She had three fantastic anaesthetists that day with her, three people who really knew their stuff, brilliant experience, but they came really task fixated on, on placing the CT tube because they knew that this was going to get them out of, of trouble, right? We just need an airway and we're great. They focused on doing this. We had two great nurses in that room. The first nurse um, called ICU and she booked a bed for Elaine um, because she could see that this her oxygen stats were dropping. This was becoming an emergency situation. She was going to need ICU care, one-on-one care and monitoring after this event. The other nurse knew that there was a protocol 
for this exact scenario. They knew that they had a can't intubate, can't ventilate protocol. And that protocol said that if you could not pass an ET tube, you moved straight to placing a trach tube. So she went and got the trach tube kit. She placed it in front of the surgeons, or the, sorry, not the surgeons, the anaesthetists, and she said to them, I've got you the trach tube kit. But because they were so task fixated, they didn't hear her. And we know that when we become task fixated, we lose our situational awareness. We become really focused. Our attention becomes really focused on what we're doing. And we can't, and one of the things we lose is our hearing. Unless you actually bring somebody back from that moment by tapping them on the shoulder or the arm or using their first name, we're not going to reach that person. We're not going to take that information forward. But because of how other people had treated that nurse on different days in the hospital, not particularly anybody who was in the room, but how she had been treated before, rather than realising that they couldn't hear her and she needed to escalate her tone, her use their first name, perhaps touch them on the shoulder, grab their attention, she assumed they'd ignored her. Mm-hmm. And they'd done so deliberately. Mm-hmm. So that fact that I just told you sort of comes in there, Elaine Bromley's oxygen saturation dropped to 40% and she entered a coma and her husband had to take um, make the terrible decision to um, stop her life support 13 days later and she died. And if that nurse had not felt like she had been ignored, it could have been just so, so different. It, it, it just... So when we say that civility saves lives, that's a really good example of exactly what can go wrong for if we don't really listen to this if we don't change our ways and um, make sure that Gosh. we don't feel like this I mean I I'm sure I, I presume this is a story that that is used to to highlight the importance of this and I you know if, I suppose that even telling this again today that you know for anything positive to come out of that awful god that awful situation and I think yeah so I, I, I'm so I'm glad we're trying today because that's so for me maybe I'm maybe I just I'm the only one that kind of misunderstood but that, this is such an enlightening thing for me as far as my understanding of this I can't I honestly can't tell you and I do I don't think I'd be the only one that kind of misunderstands this you know and I think that's why it's so important that we're we're having that that conversation so okay so I think we know this is really important and those statistics you gave were just abysmal um I think for me it just comes back to then why are people behaving in this way what because I again I'm going to probably, I'm going to get into trouble for saying some of this, but I think my, my perception of this is a lot of the times we're talking about vets, sometimes vets that are in sort of, you know, more powerful positions, powerful, whatever that means, higher up positions, maybe even specialists. And I'm allowed to say that because I'm a specialist, um, where I don't know, is there, is there a sense of just there's just you're in some way entitled to be able to talk to people in that way because I, I sometimes feel that I don't know I, I want I do that does cross my mind sometimes do you really feel that because of your position you're able to speak to people in that way which is obviously completely unacceptable and ridiculous um or am I off the mark there are there other reasons that people are doing it or is it is it just this kind of hierarchical mess that we've got ourselves into I think that's a really interesting question and to address the first part of the question about, um, you know, is that something that we feel entitled to through kind of just the position that people are in and hierarchy? I think it has been demonstrated. One of the findings of our, our research is that nurses do experience more rudeness from senior staff and co-workers than vets do. So there may be something there. But I personally like to believe that some of it is learned behaviour. It's because the people who have taught and gone before you perhaps behaved in the same way and they've modeled this inappropriate behavior but they've modeled it in a way that you you learn that this is how the job gets done and if as you're learning your supervisor behaves in this way and their supervisor before and it kind of gets passed down as actually when you when you get to this position you have to behave in this way to get the job done then it just becomes the norm um, the other thing is that we know that it's stressful. We know that 
being in the veterinary profession right now is stressful. And if we don't do enough to mitigate those stresses, then it's going to result in incivility on every level, by every member of staff potentially. We've all got very busy lives before we get to work. And then when we get to work, if we're not getting our breaks, then we're tired, um, we're hungry, we're thirsty. That contributes. If we don't go home on time, um, or we're very stressed out, or we receive client incivility, which again, from our surveys, we found was actually, there were higher levels of client rudeness currently than co-worker rudeness, which for me was a good thing, because I sort of think, well, at least the clients leave the building at the end of the day. And, you know, we, if the most important thing to me is that we're kind and compassionate to each other. But, you know, we know that this is, this is a massive um, aspect is that all of these things that can stress us so we need to look at those together it's great that we'll we go in and we teach people how to address incivility but truly by preventing it that's going to be better and we need to look at creating social contracts within um, workplaces and alongside that looking at how we can mitigate stresses making sure that people um, plan briefs um, so plan their breaks at the beginning of the day in their pre-briefs or their huddles um, make sure that people get enough support and compassion for each other and kind of there's more of a framework of understanding and they're not exposed to continually to client rudeness which is obviously going to drag them down as well. Mm. I think one of the biggest things I've worked across sort of very many different workplaces and I, I'm certainly I'm sure you've seen this at the animal health trust or structures where people are at different sort of levels of training and I think that's really true what you're saying about sort of learned behaviors and seeing you know more senior colleagues behave in a certain way I think it's amazing actually <laughs> if I'm being honest that there, there's people sometimes that I've come across in the profession where you're like you watch them behave in a certain way and you're like how do you still have a job like why are we not <laughs> why? how did you why what how are you not fired like and I I, I actually joking not joking taking some of the individuals within our profession actually putting them in a different workplace like I don't know let's take them to like a, 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 I don't know an accountancy firm or a bank or something else they'd, been, they'd literally last five minutes and they'd literally be out the door um so I think it is a, a lot of that behavior is very ingrained and that that's definitely that's definitely a challenge I think one of the other things that you're involved in and kind of um uh is a, a, you know to do with nurse leadership and nurse um training in that way um and i think that's a really important um actually element to all of this because it's got it's multifactorial isn't it but giving nurses the ability and the tools and the skills to um lead their teams um in a more effective way um can only be a positive thing for a uh, practice culture and practice environments and actually some of the strongest voices we've had on the podcast as far as just good people really still shouting loudly for this profession are nurses 100 percent um oh i've got something else to say about oh i don't want to i'm just i'm i'm, I'm giving you too many things to that can i just say so well, well let's come back to that i wanted to say one more thing about that kind of we had a nurse on who's in a leadership position a few weeks ago who works in ECC. And I've said this again, because I think it was such an important point. She was talking about just being kind in, in, in every setting and practice. And she said, she, she being kind when you're stressed, doesn't come naturally. And she had to teach herself to not react in, in the incivil way in, in some settings. And I think that's such an important thing to remember that we don't, we can't just, we can't just presume that we're always going to be kind always in every setting because the minute things get stressful we're all inclined to maybe not be as nice you know and I think and that's okay but if we can have some tools and some and some and thought about sort of altering our behavior in, our, in that setting then that that equally is very powerful you know so I, I just think kindness doesn't always come as the natural default um, and and that's okay you know what I mean that's okay um Anyway, sorry, that was just a little tangent. So let's come back to the nursing leadership element of your role and also and why empowering nurses to be leaders is so important. I think nurses are amazing leaders. I think the first thing to say is that I think lots of nurses don't realise that they are leaders. I think people think that to be a leader, you have to have management um, title or, you know, a, a desk 
with a chair, <laughs> that kind of thing. Totally unnecessary. Every nurse leads in that in different aspects of what they do. So leadership is for everybody, really, whether it's something that you really want to delve in in depth in the future or whether it's something you're doing currently or whether you just do it occasionally. And by occasionally, I mean that, you know, when we're running the checklist in theatre, when we're leading a checklist, we need to be leaders in that moment. We need to feel empowered to do that, to feel confident and to be able to communicate really well to make that happen successfully. When we're talking to clients or when we're um, talking to colleagues, again, we need to have fantastic communication and we need to sometimes be able to lead that conversation and direct it in the way that's most appropriate. We also need to be able to lead things like CPR, resuscitation you know, attempts and things like that. So we can be leaders in different, different areas. But it's so, so important that nurses get supported in this. I know so many nurses over time, and myself included, who just became a leader, just became the senior nurse without any extra guidance or any toolkit that you could refer to, just expecting that good clinical knowledge and experience would see you through. And I think whilst those two things are absolutely fundamental to being a great leader, you need a little bit more. You need some help with those non-technical skills. And you need to, like you see, you need to learn to um, be able to take a step back, process information, and then approach with compassion and empathy rather than letting it drive you to be incivil if somebody isn't behaving in the way that you'd expect or the way that you'd hope. So I think that's something, all these non-technical skills that I talk about. So leadership is a non-technical skill and one that's been found to be contributory to error. We know that through Catherine Oxford's work. But what we also know is it's really deeply entwined with lots of other things. So we know that you have to have great situational awareness to be a leader. We know that you need to have really great communication skills to be a leader. We also know that understanding empathy and compassion is important. We need to um, learn about team dynamics and teamwork and what motivates people and what makes them want to do their job and how different leadership styles can really help people in getting to where they need to go and putting all those things together that's not the kind of stuff you learn by just doing the job so I think for me it's really important that nurses get supported in this and get the tools that they need to do their job and do it really really well. Uh, yeah this kind of leader by default you know leader by just sort of age and and progress you know it's almost like a natural progression that's maybe not a natural progression for in fact it's not a natural progression for most of us it's the same it's the same with vets like as I you know when I became a specialist what's the next thing to be the head of the department and then the clinical director or whatever and that that's not necessarily for everyone you know and um but that it's almost like the default and I, I think yeah without necessarily having the tools to be able to to kind of do that I so deeply um disappointing isn't it just uh you know some of the stats you talked about is as far as particularly maybe that incivility towards nurses um and you know like you said it's maybe there's multiple reasons for that I, I I know we're not here to solve this problem today but what would you say to those particularly nurses actually um or what would you say to them in that moment where they are experiencing that kind of belittling behavior What's and again, we're not, you know, solving this whole thing today, but I think what, what what would be your kind of advice to them in that moment? What's the right thing to do? Should we be throwing something back? <laughs> or what should we do? <laughs> I like that idea. I like the kind of the, the idea of some sort of massive fight, you know, yeah. like let's get this sorted once and for all. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes you know, but I mean I didn't want to say something, but you know, sometimes you're just like, oof you know, you just need a clip across the ear. <laughs> Let's not promote violence. <laughs> I think one of the things that is really helpful is to be able to take a step back and put yourself in that person's shoes for a moment and try and imagine why are they behaving like that? What's driven them to behave in that way and to think that behaving like that is acceptable? I think we need to seek to understand what people's stresses are and to kind of help them understand the uh, impact of their behavior on other people. So one of the things we talk about is what we call the coffee cup conversations or calling it out with compassion. And the fact that actually what we know is that by making people aware of their behavior, 
it changes it. So there's some fantastic research from the Vanderbilt um, Patient and um, oh, I always forget this Patient Advocacy Center in America. Um, they, and they spent a long time looking at this and got some really robust data and, and resources. And they suggested that out of 37,000 incidences of incivility, by checking in with somebody, first of all, asking how they are and if they're okay, then going on to see if they remember the event and then making them aware of that they actually upset somebody, that 37,000 is reduced to 2,000. Only 2,000 would then reoccur. If they reoccur, a second cup of coffee, a second call out of compassion to make them aware that they've behaved in a, a, a way that again has upset somebody will reduce it to two, just 200 people who would then reoffend. So what we know is that by going to uh, management, HR, that kind of process, 85% of people are really unhappy with the outcome. It doesn't, it doesn't work. But what we do know is that by talking about it, by being compassionate, by finding out why somebody's behaving in the way that they are and making them aware of their actions and making them aware that they've upset somebody actually is far more effective. Really, really simple to do and sort of starts that effective communication across an organisation. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I can absolutely see that and I certainly have experienced that sort of thing. I think really empowering to, to hear you kind of say that and I think... Um, it's, you know there's, there's no doubt that sometimes those conversations are difficult to inst- you've, there's there's going to be a nervousness about approaching someone in that way but I think having that kind of with with compassion I think is um is is absolutely you know the as you said the best way to kind of approach these things I only I can draw on one experience that I had um, um, you know with this sort of thing where um I worked with an individual who very well respected um as far as their clinical work um but their behavior <laughs> was um uh varied at best and um and actually and and I always felt I don't know as a younger kind of member of staff I, I actually got even more riled up because I felt like I was being treated in a certain way because of actually my good nature you know mm-hmm. I, and I you know that kind of thing where and then I I'm like a little angry it's like small man syndrome like I've got Mm -hmm. that like small Scottish man who's like really resentful if I feel like I'm being kind of you know I do I kind of get annoyed if I feel like my good nature is being played upon in some way and I spoke to management about this person and they were like the best thing to do is to, to to explain to the individual why their behavior is making you feel in this way which is kind of exactly what you've told me to do so I did I did exactly that and it it and it was almost like I told this person something that they had never heard before. Yeah. And I was kind of a bit surprised because I was like, you've behaved like this for the last 30 years. So this can't be, I mean, I was like, is this, is this new news to you? So I went back to my, my, and it worked. The person improved their behavior. I went back to management and I said, but it was like, I, I was telling them this for the first time. And she was like, yeah, you probably were. And I was like, well, first, first of all, it would have been nice to maybe know that. But, you know, but my point of the story is people were so petrified of this person that actually, honestly, maybe that conversation had never been had with them before. But just that one conversation, certainly, that, and I'm not saying that I changed the world, but certainly that improved their behavior significantly from my perspective. But no one would have, no one will have thought to do that before because well maybe through fear actually you know what I mean but but from my own experience it worked extremely effectively yeah yeah and as long as you keep it in so using a non a non-violent communication technique so we're talking about keeping it within our own observations our own feelings we're not saying you made us do this or anything like that we're just saying you're making me feel like this when you did this it I observed that you did this and the result was I felt like this it's very it's a very good framework for keeping things civil, keeping things on the right level, because the worst thing we can do is escalate stuff. We also know that this framework works really well if you're brave enough as an individual to do it, but also witnesses to this kind of behavior can also do it. And other people within an organization, which we sometimes call second messengers, they can feel empowered to do it as well. So if somebody doesn't feel themselves that they could have that conversation, I totally understand that. Sometimes it can feel that you're, um, you'd be empowering that person by telling them that they'd upset you, but it would just kind of add fuel to their fire. But 
whilst that's not what the research suggests, it's totally understandable if that's, that's how, you know, might be perceived that that would go down. So we talk about second messengers as well, other people who are good at having these conversations, because we all know in practice there's very frequently somebody who's a good communicator, somebody who people feel easy to talk to, and, and getting those people to have these conversations is also really, really helpful. Amazing. And actually, yeah, across our conversations with um, with Dan and Kat and with Rue, I, I think um, I just there should there needs to be more of you because I do feel like actually you would be useful in almost every practice across the land. So we need to get <laughs> we need to get the message out there for sure. Um, amazing, amazing, really interesting. Some of that stuff today, honestly, that's really it clearly just uncovered me as like a complete fraud. I should have done my research more on incivility. I didn't, but then he, I've learned today what it really, what, what it all really means. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, I just wanted to ask you a few questions, if that's okay. Ones that we like to ask everyone and it would be unfair for me not to ask you. Um, so I wondered if you could share with us um, what you would like to be when you grow up. Ooh. Well, I think that's a really good question and one that I might have answered differently a few years ago, because I think if you'd asked me whilst I was doing my master's, I'd probably say I'd really like to be able to put my clinical knowledge and my theoretical knowledge of human facts together. And that's kind of what I do now. Um, and I absolutely love it. So does that make me a grown up? <laughs> I'm a bit concerned uh, now. <laughs> one 100 percent. but isn't that wonderful i think if you there you go you did it yes that's very good um but nice i think i suppose then the question would be what you know keeping doing what you're doing absolutely and, and obviously there's a huge amount of work to do i suppose then where do you see this journey going for you as far as continuing to combine these two things so for me um i'm really passionate about understanding more and making everybody not just some people, everybody in the veterinary space aware of how powerful human factors are and how they contribute to great patient safety and wellness. Our wellness of our staff is so, so important. Um, putting those two together. For me, my next challenge, should we say, is that I'm, I'm just about to start a PhD to look more deeply into non-technical skills within the veterinary profession and what we can actually do to help people learn them um, and work out frameworks. There's frameworks within human healthcare for how we teach um, non-technical skills. And that's what I want to look into, how we actually make it easy to teach people how to do it as well. That's very cool. Very cool. Um you know you, your career has taken some some really really interesting sort of um directions but if you were to kind of go back and knowing what you know now I suppose would you still make that decision to train as a veterinary nurse oh for sure still my first passion still cut me in half I'm like a stick of rock I'm a veterinary nurse all the way through sounds really cheesy but I do believe that every single step we take is what we're meant to do and we'll just end up where we're meant to be and I certainly feel that whilst my path has been all sorts of crisscrosses and back and forth and, and up and down I feel like I've reached something by being a veterinary nurse that I could never have dreamt of I've absolutely loved every minute of my career so far and I've no doubt that I'll continue to love it for many years to come so so yeah I, would, I think I would do it so good gosh that's good that is yeah and I, I think it that it's the crisscross and the up and down it's all it's all valuable isn't it really I think it's all part of of just you know where we're meant to be right now as 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 we've said where we're you know just where we're meant to be right now and actually as I said with, as I joke with Kat I mean if you hadn't become a veteran nurse we wouldn't be having this conversation right now and that would have been sad <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway I can assure you that you have inspired people um I'm sure for many different reasons across uh, your um, time in the profession. Is there anyone particularly that has been an inspiration to you? Oh my goodness. So many people that have been inspiration to me. I can tell you if I took a snapshot of the last month, how about, how about that? Let's do the last month. Okay. So the last month um, in no particular order, Chris Turner, absolute legend. If you get a chance to either speak to Chris, listen to Chris, look at his podcasts, he is one of the nicest guys who always makes space and time. He is the co-founder of Civility Saves Lives. 
And you might think that that would make him unreachable. He's absolutely not. He's a really nice guy. And we're talking to him, learning from him, absolutely inspirational. The Learning From Excellence team, also absolutely inspirational, talking about learning from things that go right um, and way we can understand um, that sort of area in our work rather than in veterinary practice. At the moment, what we look at is a lot of learning from error. We look at things that have gone wrong. We know that we need to look at what goes right as well because that's where the that's where the magic happens and making that happen again and working out what caused it to go right that day so so important so the learning from excellence team and um their work on appreciative inquiry the vet led team obviously i mean come on we're just the dream team right i can't <laughs> deal with the love it's between you it's almost sickening i'm gonna have to be slightly sickened by it yeah, it's no it's lovely so yes we love everyone everyone loves everyone it's great and, and last but not least i also want to put a massive shout out to the bvna because i attended oh. their conference um a little mm. while ago the congress i was i was absolutely i was blessed to be able to talk about incivility one of my passions and um I was absolutely inspired. The growth and the voice of the the veterinary nurses that I met and who I listened to in the time that I've been a nurse, I just came back with this deep sense that we're finally getting there. We had our own voice. We were really progressing. Mm -hmm. And I was so inspired by so many people. It was just wonderful. Um, Honestly, I could not, I, I literally could not agree more. I, I, we are very lucky to have connections with <clears throat> a number of people actually that, that spoke at BVNA. Um, I, I, I don't want to, you know, to name a few, but, but, uh, Jack Pye, uh, Lacey, who did a, a, a again, who, uh, just speaks so eloquently about a lot of, um, a lot of subjects in the kind of well-being space, just, I, and I, I, seeing their social media of the event and just watching them flourish and watching them deliver presentations and just be powerful and, and, and inspiring I just I was extremely inspired you know inspired and I, I was say I was saying to Andy you know we were talking about you know going to a congress as VTX you know having a stand or whatever and I was like I don't I, would, I don't want to go to I want to go to BVNE I don't want to go to London Vet Show I want to go to BVNE because I just loved that even not being there I love the feel of what it what it was you know what I mean just very empowering very empowering amazing and abs- absolutely Lacey and Jack I bumped into them both in the corridor and, oh, did oh my you? Goodness, yeah. first time I'd seen their actual whole bodies and yeah, oh yeah. we had massive hugs it was just so so lovely to meet them in reality and they really are as lovely as they um they seem and as wonderful as they seem they're just so inspiring and so many other veterinary nurses as well it's just so many. oh yeah yeah i mean so many i mean yeah there's so many um and nice for you to kind of reflect and see things change you know and be able to say no it's better you know i love that i love that um so with your uh, your your wisdom, your <laughs> infinite amount infinite amounts of wisdom, w- would there be um, a piece of advice that you particularly would like to share with our audience? Those who know me will not be surprised by this. Just keep learning. Just keep your mind open and explore the possibilities, because it's just so rewarding and. You know, if you're not happy where you are right now, then look at what you can do to to change that and what what you're interested in and really channel yourself and focus on that and learn about it. And because, like I said before, you never know where you're going to end up, but everything that happens happens for a reason and you'll get you'll get there. It's something great will happen. Great advice and, and just wonderful to chat to you today. And actually, and, and and having just the opportunity to chat to your whole team and 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 sorry, and, and not joking, but what a wonderful kind of sentiment from everyone about just the fact that you are a, a really good bunch of people. And I just love that. And you genuinely do seem to like each other, which is so nice. So I just think it's it's lovely. And um, so that is just so nice to see. Um, and I, I you know, I, I, I would want you in my practice. So I think... Um, there may have to be more of you as time goes on because um i can just there's such a just cl- such a clear space for what you're doing and 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 um yeah i, I think that, that what you're offering is just so valuable so thank you uh, very much thank you it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you we 
we're now going to launch into our clinical segment um, and as I said uh, treatment options for feline pancreatitis. We're picking up where we left off which is really to talk about some of the treatment options that we have available to us. Now let's start by talking about acute pancreatitis um, and Ultimately, um, you know, if we're dealing with acute pancreatitis, often these patients will present more acutely, funnily enough, um, and may actually be quite sick when we we see them. As always, you know, the inciting cause of any pancreatitis should be removed or treated, but actually most cases will be idiopathic, remember. Um, and, and actually with acute pancreatitis, a lot of what we're doing is managing the complications of that condition. Um, and I would always be, you know, always have a focus on diagnosing and treating comorbidities in these patients too. You know, cats never make it simple. So let's not just focus on the pancreatitis. We, we want to focus on potentially the systemic complications of pancreatitis, but also managing any comorbidities that we might be seeing concurrently. Intravenous fluid therapy is almost certainly going to be a part of the treatment in these acute cases. And whether that is, well, almost certainly that will be intravenous crystalloid fluid therapy, not only to correct dehydration and potentially help a little bit with electrolyte imbalances, but actually in some of these cases, you will be dealing with hypovolemia. So the way that you administer your crystalloid fluid therapy will really depend on whether you have just dehydration or a combination of dehydration and hypovolemia um, because obviously the uh, you know hypovolemia the strategy with fluid fluid therapy for hypo hypo goodness me hypovolemia is going to be uh, uh, different these patients will always benefit from some sort of antiemetic therapy and I, I would always say that patients do not need to be vomiting for you to give them an antiemetic. We have to presume that they feel pretty sick. Um, and so I would always be erring on the side of caution, even if they're not actively vomiting, particularly when we're talking about using drugs that are relatively safe. So meropotent is, is often a first line antiemetic or anti-nausea therapy um, in cats with pancreatitis. The main thing you want to be sort of conscious of when you're using antiemetics is that you've ruled out basically foreign bodies. So, you know, cats are not as silly as dogs and they don't tend to get as many foreign bodies. Um, but obviously any acutely unwell vomiting animal, cat or dog, a foreign body has to be on the list of possible differentials. So the only thing is I would be making sure to kind of rule that out before, um, you know, just so that you know that you're not then maybe masking the signs of something like that underlying. But patients with pancreatitis are going to are going to benefit from meropotent, potentially not just because of its anti-emetic and anti-nausea properties, but also for its potential visceral analgesic and anti-inflammatory properties too. So I think it's a really good drug to consider. Let's give serenia or meropotent to begin with, but if that doesn't improve the vomiting or doesn't result in your patient maybe wanting to eat, then give another one, you know. So um, there are other anti-emetic um, therapies that are available and, um, you know, I would then put another one on top and not necessarily stop the meropotent, add something in. Um, so ondansetron is a good option. It works differently from meropotent and um, is, is, is a, a, another good option for anti-nausea and anti-emetic therapy. And then considering whether there might be some ileus associated with pancreatitis. And often there is. The gut doesn't really like all this bad stuff going on all around it. And so I would be thinking about um, potentially using something like metoclopramide um, or cisipride, um, you know, as a as a prokinetic. Um, the benefit, obviously, of meropotent, um, sorry, metoclopramide, is that you can give metoclopramide as a CRI, but we only have cisipride orally. Um, so metoclopramide as a CRI is is probably the next best option in some of these patients. Uh, and I would also, um, you know, there may be some antiemetic therapy there too. So you're, you're doing a combination thing uh, with metoclopramide. Analgesia is obviously absolutely um, cornerstone uh, with these um, pancreatitis patients, acute pancreatitis patients. And, you know, the, the, we, we should never underestimate abdominal pain just because the patients don't squeal when we touch their abdomen. You know, they, 
particularly cats are so good at kind of masking stuff and just not um, typically maybe showing all of the signs um, outwardly. So using opioids when they're hospitalized, um, methadone, um, uh, but also potentially buprenorphine, depending on the degree of, of, of discomfort. Other options would be things like fentanyl, but usually methadone and buprenorphine are, are a, a, a good uh, are good options uh, potentially. The nice thing about buprenorphine is you can transition onto oral buprenorphine if they are still requiring analgesia but going home. Uh, and remembering also that meropotent potentially has that visceral analgesic effect, so that's also good um, as a complementary uh, part of the analgesia uh, regime as well. We want to be getting these patients eating as quickly as possible and there are really two ways that we can do that. Um, we can do that potentially with appetite stimulants um, but we have to be careful uh, with the use of appetite stimulants in, in these acutely unwell patients and the other major option we have is feeding tubes but I think regardless of how we do it nutrition is absolutely key in these acute pancreatitis patients, there is no benefit in starving them at all. You know, so we we know that that's not helpful. Um, and early enteral nutrition is key as well. So getting something into the actual intestine is going to be the best way of improving uh, gastrointestinal motility, stopping villous atrophy, um, you know, promoting good blood flow to the intestine. So everything is going to be better if there is food actually in the stomach and intestine. And like I said, you know, sometimes you treat these patients analgesia, antiemetics, um, and that's enough to get them going eating wise. If you feel like they just need a little nudge, then maybe an appetite stimulant is a, is a good idea. And I would use either mirtazapine or a, a newer drug, which is very effective, called uh, Entice or Capromorelin, which is a ghrelin receptor agonist. That's a brilliant drug, actually. But don't delay, you know, so don't allow that to delay you too much. And if you, you know, getting a feeding tube into these patients, if we're seeing them, them continue to be anorexic, we want to do that as promptly as possible. Remember that... Um, the other benefit of potentially um, putting a feeding tube in it is that you can also give water. Uh, you can also decompress the stomach, take some of the, the stomach contents out of there, kind of lingering around for a bit. Um, and also it's a way of giving medication, particularly with an esophageal feeding tube. If you're going to send patients home, you can send patients home with an esophageal feeding tube in place. Owners tolerate that really well. And it may just be a way of giving them medication for a period of time because that can be really difficult. Remember, cats with um, acute pancreatitis, they, uh, well, actually cats with pancreatitis generally, they, um, uh, are not you don't need to fat restrict them um, as much as we we think we do need to in dogs. The exact di dietary needs of it, of patients with pancreatitis or acute pancreatitis is not maybe completely determined, um, but cats have a need for dietary protein and they have a higher tolerance for dietary fat. So I would be using a good quality diet. We don't need to think too much about it being really fat restricted. That's not necessary in cats. And your diet choice is going to be also um, uh, dictated to by palatability and also what you can get down a feeding tube. So if you've got a nasogastric feeding tube in place, then you're going to have to reach for something that can go down a nasogastric tube. So that's going to dictate a little bit what you what you do. There is a little bit of a debate about... Um, the benefit of fresh frozen plasma or plasma products in patients with um, pancreatitis, acute pancreatitis. And, and, and the, the thinking is potentially um, replacing things like alpha-2 macroglobulins, um, potentially having a beneficial effect on um, patients with pancreatitis. I don't think we know that that's true. And so the only reason that I would be using uh, fresh frozen plasma or, or, or frozen plasma would be either to treat a coagulopathy, and usually that would be with fresh frozen plasma, or for colloidal support, you know, as using it as a colloid. But actually, um, it's not got a, prov a direct proven benefit um, in, uh, in acute pancreatitis. 
If you're struggling with blood pressure um, and, and your patient is hypovolemic um, and you've treated with crystalloid fluid therapy, um, the other option is using some other sort of fluid um, for uh, addressing uh, that uh, blood pressure particularly. And, and so giving something maybe more colloidal to support um, synthetic colloids are interesting because that's maybe what we would think about reaching for next. That synthetic colloids are kind of in and out of favour, and and there, there's some evidence um, in human medicine, particularly, that there can be some quite significant uh, uh, issues with using colloids uh, from a acute renal failure and coagulopathy point of view. So they they kind of fall out of favour a bit. What we are finding that if you are struggling with blood pressure and you're not finding that that's responding to crystalloid fluid therapy, often then moving quick, more quickly to using um, some sort of uh, presser support. Um, and, and, and probably the one that we're using more commonly now is norepinephrine to support uh, blood pressure. Generally speaking, acute pancreatitis is a sterile process. So the role of bacteria is not well um, determined. And in, in acute cases of pancre pancreatitis that are not uh, complicated, so to speak, then we would not routinely be giving antibiotics. We really um, should only be reserving antibiotics for cases of acute pancreatitis where there is, a, there is obvious infection, maybe a pancreatic abscess or obvious uh, necrotic infected tissue. Um, there is there is this argument about you know um, the ascension of bacteria from the GI tract uh, involving the the liver and pancreas, um, and so the other thing that I would be kind of aware of is in cases where patients are more systemically unwell, where you are suspicious of sepsis, then obviously you would give antibiotics to those cases. That's a difficult call to make, but certainly, you know, um, findings on CBC where they develop a very severe neutropenia, um, where their cardiovascular parameters are becoming less stable with uh, hypotension, um, uh, tachycardia that's not well controlled. That potentially would be things that would be um, starting to make you worry about um the development of sepsis and certainly antibiotics, uh, broad spectrum, normally um, amoxicillin clavulonate and potentially um, combining with a fluoroquinolone in some cases, um, but but not in, in, in general cases of acute uh, pancreatitis. Um, again, there's a number of studies looking at, you know, uh, are there, uh, uh, you know, bacteria involved in this process. And again, I think at this time, we don't have strong clinical evidence for that. So um, I think antibiotics, but only in very selected uh, cases. And then what about steroids in cases of acute pancreatitis? And I would say that steroids are not used routinely um, in cases of acute pancreatitis. Um, there was a recent study in dogs um, evaluating steroids for the treatment of acute pancreatitis um, and also in humans. And um, potentially in that study from, from JSAP, um, there was a, an improved outcome with, with steroids in acute pancreatitis. But I don't think we know that in cats and so would not be using steroids routinely in those cases. The, the, the time that you might use steroids is if they had a concurrent disorder. So I suppose... Um, if they had uh, concurrent uh, concurrent um, inflammatory bowel disease, for instance. We can see some respiratory signs um, developing in cases of acute pancreatitis with tachypnea and laboured breathing. Even pleural effusion of pulmonary edema can be present. Um, and that uh, you know, is, is secondary to, to what we think is an acute lung injury uh, and a, an acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, these can be difficult to manage. I, well, I think we have to deal with them on a kind of case by case uh, basis. But just being aware that we can see respiratory signs developing with uh, pancreatitis. And finally, other treatments. So, so surgical management is rarely indicated in cats with acute pancreatitis. The only time that surgical indication or surgical 
uh, intervention would be indicated would be if there was a extra hepatic biliary uh, tract obstruction. Um, and so that is very, very, you know, case dependent. Prognostically, the mortality rate in cats with acute pancreatitis ranges from uh, wide, 9 to 41%, depending on which study. Um, and uh, things like hypoglycemia and azotemia uh, are poor prognostic indicators. But again, it's very difficult to predict. It's very much on a case-by-case -case basis with these cases, and they can indeed be uh, very challenging. Okay, so that's a whiz through acute pancreatitis. Ooh, oh, can't even say it. Acute pancreatitis today. We'll finish off next time just by uh, discussing uh, chronic pancreatitis and triaditis, uh, and that'll wrap up our uh, pancreatitis discussions. A massive thank you again to Helen from VetLed, but also, as always, for you for taking time out of your busy day to listen to us. Uh, we really do honestly appreciate all of the support. And um, we pop some information in the show notes about VetLed and the amazing work that they do. Please do uh, pop over to our website, www.vtx-cpd.com uh, to find out a bit more about us. Massive thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Take care.